Blog Talk Radio. How goes it? 
Well, today is, uh, I see, 36 degrees out. A little yeah. chilly, but no wind. Uh, you know, give me a couple minutes, and uh, hopefully I'll find something. You know, it'd be cool to find a salamander on this thing, since the show is about amphibians, you know, so that'd be really cool, bro. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what, what I heard, you know, you told me the story before the, the show, man. You've had a rough, rough night there, brother. Since about 11.30 last night, yeah, it, uh, nothing's went right in about the last 24 hours. Um, got a large snake order going out tomorrow. Got to get printer labels shipped. And I'm not going to get into the whole story. It basically involves broken printer, having to go get new printer, getting it back, not having all the parts I need, breaking a key off in the lock of the house, having to break into my own house, and... Um, in the cold, accidentally shattering a storm window glass all over the place. I mean, everything I touch right now is just going all to hell. Um, <laughs> I might just crawl back in bed. <laughs> but it's um, it's bound to look up. <laughs> I mean, just everything is just going all to hell. So, um, well, you know, we'll see. But we got a special show lined up today. Um, there's a lot of news we're going to get into concerning the world of amphibians, and um, also we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, future of um, amphibians' captivity and in the wild. Um, we have on the line um, James Lewis and Reed Harris from the ASA, that's the Amphibian Survival Alliance, who we've uh, done show with in the past, and we've got... Um, Josh Willard and Zachary Brinks from Josh's Frogs on also, so we'll be talking to them. But um, right before we do that, we're going to go ahead and run our sponsor ads. So you got anything else you need to put out there, J.D.? Not to get a new sponsor, so he just didn't do the recording yet, but uh, everybody check out Animal Bites TV. It's from Brian Barczyk. It's some great programming, so check it out. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Brian's been doing some really good work with the Animal Bites TV, and um, he's doing some good stuff there. Definitely check out Animal Bites TV. Okay. Herpentime Radio would like to thank the following sponsors. Darren Taylor of TaylorMadeMorphs.com, specializing in ball pythons, morphs, and other select species of reptiles. Check out Ty's Lizards on Facebook, specializing in iguanas, Tegus, and other awesome reptiles. ExtremeHogs.com Justin Mitchum specializing in western hognose morphs. Check out ExtremeHogs.com HerpHouseMag.com The first and best digital reptile magazine. Subscribe today and use Herp in Time 30 and receive 30% off single issue volumes and subscriptions. Cincinnati Oxalatas on Facebook, check them out for Oxalatos Morse. Hop on over to joshesfrogs.com for great prices on herp supplies and live feeder insects. Experience the low prices, same-day shipping, and the best customer service in the industry at Josh's Frogs for 10 years. We've specialized in captive bread frogs, naturalistic Bavaria, and live Bavaria plants. Check out joshesfrogs.com for weekly deals. Check out newstees.com for their popular Stop Rattlesnake Roundup shirts and help with the cause. Also check out texasrattlesnakefestival.net. FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape is the best for our pets. If it doesn't say made in the USA, it's not FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape. And here are the sponsors of Herp and Time Radio. They make the Herp community a better place every day. Check out Amanda's Facebook page, a great artist who also did the new Herp and Time Radio logo. Her Facebook page is Amanda Rose Wanner Concept Artist. U.S. Art, protecting our rights to keep herps. Please become a member today. Hey everyone, if you want to help rehome wild caught tegus, Check out tagusonly.com. Animal equipment by Sony. Great herper tools of the trade. Stump rippers and many other great reptile supplies available. 
Fauna.net. Set up an account and enjoy buying and selling captive bred herps. ABDragons.com. Great suppliers of Dobia roaches. The perfect feeder insect. Mention Herpentime Radio on their website and get 10% off. ReptileUV.com. Working on making the best UV lighting for your animals. Reptile lighting is a process. Check out ReptileUV.com. Herpers TV on YouTube with Dave Kaufman brings Herpers great weekly episodes on the reptile community. Check out the Herpers Trilogy. And also don't forget, check out the Nature Girls on YouTube. This show is about nature weekly episodes and it's become a Hartzell family production. to Herpentime Radio, you must love reptiles. If you love stickers and reptiles, you better check out Happy Gecko Sticky Situation, where you can find wall decals, stickers, magnets, all kinds of reptile stuff, and all different kinds of species, too. You can even get jewelry there. Check us out at happygeckostickers.etsy.com. Proud sponsors of Herpentime Radio. Hi, this is Chad Brown, and you are listening to Herpentime Radio. Herpentime is brought to you by the Reptile Report Marketplace and Ship Your Reptiles. For all your buying and selling needs, check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. For all your shipping needs, get with the industry leader, ShipYourReptiles.com, where you'll find discounted rates, world-class customer service, and exclusive features like our live arrival insurance. Thanks for supporting the Reptile Report and Ship Your Reptiles. Thanks for listening to Herpentime Radio. Okay, now we've got a whole list of um, callers and guests to bring on here, so I'm going to start trying to knock them out. Um, I'd like to welcome back to Herpin Time Radio. It's been a little while since we talked to him, Reed Harris from the Amphibian Survival Alliance, or ASA. Reed, welcome back to Herpin Time Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's... um, you know, you were talking about some pretty scary stuff right before the show um, concerning a, a a new form of the chytrid fungus um, that's been discovered. What can you tell us about that? Right. So we've known about a chytrid fungus which attacks frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians, BD. We've known about that for about 15 years. And as probably most everybody knows, um, this caused really drastic declines and extinctions in areas around the world, such as uh, Central America, Australia, parts of the U.S., the western U.S. And now just very recently, there's been a new uh, chytrid fungus discovered, which we're calling B. sal, for Batraca chytrium salamandra vorans. And this one seems to specialize just on salamanders. Uh, it's only been known to attack salamanders so far, including, for example, the fire salamander in Europe. And it just... Uh, seems to drive those populations right down to uh, extinction. And there's been just two papers published on this so far, so it's just right early in the research. Um, But it does look like it would really devastate uh, the salamandrids, the newts, and so forth. So like our note thalamus here in North America, our tarika in North America, they just seem completely uh, susceptible and in the laboratory trials, that every every one of them that's been tested pretty much dies. Uh, so the good news is we haven't found it yet in the United States, in North America, Central America. Uh, it's been found in Europe, and it seems to have originated in Asia. So obviously there's a serious concern since we have such a high diversity of salamanders uh, and newts in North America. Right. Really the biodiversity hotspot. Um, so it is really frightening and terrifying. And if there's a way we could try to keep it out from coming over from Europe uh, and threatening North America, Central America, possibly South America as well, uh, that's the challenge we have right now. Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and bring on uh, James Lilith also with the ASA. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, James, I'd like to welcome you to Herpin Time Radio. I believe this is the first time that we've had a chance to talk with you. Um, it I'm is. I'm wondering if you had sure. anything that you'd like to add to what um, Reed said. 
Yeah, well, Reed's really touched on the science there, and I think that that's, it's important to understand what we do know and what we don't know at this point. And with B-cell, we've got a lot of questions that need to be answered in the next few months. Um, so we're working with our partners around the world to really get a better understanding of what B-cell is and the potential impact, but at the same time working on these strategies for keeping it out of North America, um, trying to stop its spread in Europe, and working out what our strategies are for the future if it does arise. Okay. Um, how long ago was this new form of Kitchwood discovered? It's really just been in, within the last year. The first paper came out uh, just, I think, in the end of 2013. Is that right, James? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And I think just that's very really important. I just, yeah, just like in the last six months, it's been uh, the publications have come out. So it's, you know, obviously it's an ancient uh, species, but it's just been discovered by science quite recently. Okay. And is it, um, despite the difference that this is only attacking salamanders, is there any other differences between this and the original chytrid? Uh, there are some biological differences. For example, the bee sow, the one that has been newly discovered, uh, its optimal growth is at a lower temperature compared to BD. Uh, it also, uh, there's some technical details like the, the life cycle called the sporangium, which is what produces all the spores. Uh, that tends to be more of a colonial form. Uh, it seems to attack the skin a little bit differently. It causes uh, lesions, whereas BD causes more hyperkeratosis and hyperplasia. Right. Does attack uh, the skin a little bit differently, and of course, I guess the main thing is at least so far, like James says, there's still a lot of open questions. Uh, it tends to just go after the salamanders. So if you try to infect a frog, uh, it, it doesn't take, for example. Okay. So for some reason, right. it seems to specialize on salamanders. All right. So it's not affecting the frogs, but can the frogs be carriers? Uh, as far as I can tell, um, they might be a temporary carrier, like a hitchhiker sort of phenomenon. Uh, but the sampling that's been done, and here again, you know, this is like brand new six months ago sort of paper. Uh, it hasn't actually, uh, there's, there's no evidence that they would be, be sort of a carrier at this point. Okay. All right. Now, what kind of strategy is um, being thought of to try to control the spread of the B-cell? Well, as, as James says, we have some policy options now, and he can elaborate on those. Because I guess one thing we're all worried about is we know a lot from, from BD now. You know, that caught everybody really unawares around the year 2000. And we saw all the devastation that happened, you know, 40% of the species in the mountains of Panama going, going extinct, mainly the frogs. Uh, so we have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, you know, once it spreads. You know, it's already causing havoc with fire salamander populations in Europe, for example. Um, right. So, you know, one option is to try to keep it out and keep it from spreading. Uh, but, you know, we also need, as James mentioned, to have some backup plans in case it does get over here. But uh, so maybe, I don't know, James, do you want to elaborate on, on some of the ways we might be able to try to keep it out? Sure. Um, so we're in discussions at the moment with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and a number of our other partners to look at policy options. And really what we want to try and see implemented is some sort of a program to monitor amphibians or salamanders as they're brought in so that we are sure that we're only bringing in B-cell-free salamanders. Now, what that program will actually look like, we're still trying to work out. And that's why it's important that we keep the door open, have conversations with groups like USARC and Josh Sprogs and, you know, all of these other groups that are heavily involved in, in the hobby community so that we understand where your needs are. Right. Because, you know, it, it's important that trade continues. That's, that's important for the hobby community. It's important for the science community. It's important for zoos. So that, that's not even in question at this point. Okay. What we need to work out is how do we bring salamanders into this country safely? Okay, um, speaking of Josh's frogs, we've got Josh Willard and Zachary Brinks on the line. I'm going to go ahead and bring them on right now. 
Zach Brinks, it's good to talk to you again, my brother. It's uh it's you know, you're on recently. Um, you've been on a few times and uh Josh Willard, this will be the first time that we've had a chance to talk to you, so I'd would definitely like to welcome you to Herpin Time Radio. Thanks a lot, glad to be on. Howdy again, guys. Hello, Zach. Um all right, so what do you guys think about all this? with this new Kittred and um, trying to keep it out of the country and, and everything that's going on. Yeah. I mean, especially with uh, looking at the lessons learned from how the, you know, the the original Kittred, as you called it earlier, kind of took the, the pet industry and wild populations and everything by storm when we were woefully unprepared for it. Um, I think if we can kind of look at it differently and this time around prepare for it, be more a lot more proactive about it, have some right. game, game ready to go to address situations today arise. I think I think we all owe that to the animals we all love. Right. Um now would it be well actually um Reed mm-hmm. is there a way to test for this um to try to find it before the salamander becomes systematic? Uh absolutely. Yeah, so the original authors uh, the authors on the original paper, um, which are out of uh, Europe, uh, they developed a, uh, a PCR method, so it's a molecular method. You swab the amphibian. Um, it's a pretty quick method. Uh, there's, there's also some labs working on even faster uh, PCR kits. It's definitely possible to test and see if the animal is infected. Um, in terms of where you catch it in an individual animal's um, that. Yeah. Sort of cycle, you know, if you catch it early, then you would be able to treat it uh, potentially right. successfully. So, yes, there are ways to uh, diagnose it, and uh, assuming that it responds similarly to BD, the original chytrid that was discovered, uh, there would be ways to treat it with antifungal drugs. And probably right. more successfully with uh, heat therapy, since it, it prefers a much cooler temperature than the BD chytrid. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, Reed, I remember. Um, I remember back when we had you on before, you talked about, I think it was you, somebody was on that show, talked about a um, a bacterial concoction that could be used to okay. fight citrid. Right. Is that something um, feasible against this form of the fungus? Yeah, well, our, that's a good point. So our research into uh, probiotics for the skin uh, has been proceeding, you know, slowly but surely, and we've had some interesting uh, breakthroughs, and there's some other labs working on uh, probiotic therapy. Uh, you know, different labs around the world are also working on this. So it would stand to reason that uh, a similar sort of strategy might work. And so, you know, I think our first priority, as James mentioned, is to try to keep B cell from spreading. Right. Uh, but we do need to move forward with these other solutions like the probiotics um, in case it gets here uh, anyway, or who knows, it might already be here. But I do want to stress that, you know, of all the testing that's been done in natural populations in North America so far, there hasn't been that much of it. But all testing that's been done so far says that B-Sal is so far not in North America. Um, so if we can keep it like that, great. But we need to start working on some of these strategies like uh, like the probiotics as well. And so my lab will be doing some of that um, just in case it does get over here. All right. Would it, would it be um, practical and feasible? To have incoming salamanders tested and quarantined, and then possibly either treated or, if they're too far advanced, euthanized to keep them out of the. I mean, I my opinion on that is absolutely, and James uh, may be able to comment on this uh, more so than I can. But, for example, uh, salmon, any salmon that gets imported has to be tested thoroughly to make sure it's free of whorling disease. Uh, so there are precedents for this sort of thing in terms of testing. Now, obviously, that would all have to get set up. It would have to have government you know, approval and so forth. Uh, but that's what we're talking about. So it sounds like we're not talking about you know, restricting trade, but just ensuring a, a disease-free animal coming in. Right, right, okay. All right, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I, I personally work with some salamanders. I've got some axolotls mm-hmm. out. Um, 
in my reptile room, a small colony of them. I know JD works with them as well, and of course uh, Josh and Zach work with a lot of different amphibians. Mm-hmm. And you know, a species like the axolotl that you know probably wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for captive breeding. So um, exactly. definitely like the approach that you're wanting to take with this. Um, JD, you got anything you want to add? Like I have, I uh, the summer finds. I have found about five uh, northern two-line salamanders, one northern dusty. I'm having a great time out here. Uh, I'm listening to the show, man. Uh, some good information getting out there. Uh, you know, I love salamanders, so uh, it'd be great to keep them safe. <laughs> okay, right. I just found three three northern duskies and a uh, two-line salamander, one flip. Wow. Under the same rock? Under the same rock. Nice. Nice. That's pretty neat. This guy's out there in in December finding salamander, guys. That's pretty badass. (laughs) That's good. I like it. Okay. um, Zach or uh, Josh um, would... Having the amphibians, particularly salamanders, being tested and quarantined and stuff when they're as they're coming into the country, um, what do you guys think of that? Well, I think in some ways it kind of caught the uh, reptile community off guard. I don't know um, how many if you guys have seen the U.S. Arc email that went out. You know, very um, very much so. You know, not not something that we normally hear about in the reptile community, although. We know that it does happen in some of their other um, industries, and Reed talked about that with the salmon, but, you know, other um, animals being tested uh, for different diseases as they're coming in. That's not something that's very common in the reptile industry, so it kind of caught us off guard. So I don't know if Reed could kind of elaborate a little bit more about that, like how common this actually is for fish and wildlife to kind of oversee some kind of testing as animals come in and, and maybe if you can, a little bit of a history, like how this normally plays out, you know, with organizations contacting U.S. Fish and Wildlife to get this started, how quickly it gets started, um, and how, you know, whether that moratorium ends pretty quickly, if if that's something that normally happens uh, with fish and wildlife, because it's not something that's very common in the reptile industry at all. Okay, so uh, James has just been meeting with Fish and Wildlife. uh, So, James, do you want to uh, take that one on? Yeah, sure. Um, to answer your question very quickly, the reality is that this is unknown territory. Um, fish and wildlife have done this for, for the salmon species, as Reed mentioned. Um, but really for amphibians, this is essentially unheard of. So, so we're trying to work out what options there are. In terms of timeline, um, it would be great to think that in the next 12 months we can have something set up and running um, to, to monitor uh, amphibians as they're coming in, or salamanders as they're coming in. Um, with regards to how long a moratorium would be in place, um, hopefully not long at all. The only reason a moratorium would need to be there is because there isn't sufficient protocols in place to make sure we're getting safe salamanders in. So the end goal is safe salamanders in, not a moratorium. Um, so working with the trade, making sure that we've got the, the right tools in place when animals are coming into a country and when they're leaving the points of export, the sooner we can get that infrastructure up and running, the shorter any sort of the moratorium would be. Okay. All right. Um, you know, I don't know. This might be a moot point or something we ought to discuss. Um, we definitely got to keep this fungus um, away from U.S. shores. I can definitely see that. And, of course, that is more important than what I'm about to ask. And it's just something I'm just trying to cover all bases here. Um, See, either Josh or Zach would probably be the best ones to answer this. Um, What do you guys think that a moratorium like this would do to the, the prices or the market for the um, the captive salamanders. Yeah. I think it'll probably um, increase the co- the cost of salamanders not produced domestically um, by right. quite a bit in the short term. And of course, the 
I'd imagine the price of domestically produced salamanders, depending on how common they are, would either not change or slightly increase. Um, I don't think it would be all that dramatic, especially if a moratorium was, um, you know, fairly small. Um, I know at least in the dart frog community, which is the amphibian community I'm personally the most familiar with, um, a lot of different businesses, um, ours one of them already routinely tests for not only chytrid but also ronavirus. Okay. And um, by doing so, by screening new animals that always get come into our facility and quarantining them all for at least three months and them having a clean test, um, we're actually working with a um, – participating with a study with Dr. Michael Levy at the NCSU College of Veterinary Medicine concerning chytrid testing. Um, it's all done with PCR. Results are generally done back within two to three days. Um, and it's not very expensive at all. It's a very, very, very small, you know, price to pay for being assured that our amphibians are free of these diseases, which can affect wild populations as well as, you know, your, the pets that we all want to keep happy and healthy at home. Right. Um, okay, just another question, and this is, again, just to cover all bases, because um, I'm not really even sure, but um, with the number of animals being bred already in captivity in this country, um, do we really need the imports? Hmm. Is that aimed at us, or who would you like to respond yeah. to that? Um, yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, let's see what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, my personal opinion, I won't really speak on behalf of the business, but uh, my own personal sp opinion, which gets a wide variety of reactions when I've made it public before, I'm not completely and utterly against um, wild-caught imports. Um, I just don't think they should be done the way they are currently in a lot of situations. When you go to a reptile show, those, you know, cheap, you know, inexpensive, not-in-the-best-condition animals um, tend to be wild-caught imports. Um, I'd much rather see a system in place where um, wild cots are um, imported much more carefully um, with more screening, maybe um, uh, treated, um, you know, uh, by the actual importer ex um, bringing them in before they're distributed right. into the hot. Go for a much higher cost. Um, I think it's just kind of crazy to think that a um, an animal can be bred here in the United States and, um, you know, be more expensive to produce than an animal that, you know, is shipped from overseas and everything. Um, I think with any of these wild-caught animals coming in, I'd like to see far fewer of them coming in in most situations. Um, and just come in and, you know, be screened, um, be treated for disease. Um, they, so they don't have that reputation of being almost a, um, a hard-to-keep or almost a disposable pet. Um, right. I'd like to see them a lot but of breeders who are working to produce animals domestically, I think you'll end up with a much um, higher quality, healthier animal available to the, the, the pet keeper, the pet owner in the long run. Okay. So and just Zach, to add to uh, that, I think what Zach's saying is there shouldn't be a dichotomy of either captive-bred or wild-caught, but that somehow we need to work wild-caught into uh, captive-bred programs. So it's not an either-or right. that wild -caught, bring in wild-caught animals has to be part of the captive-bred solution, which allows for much less reliance on wild-caught wild uh, population. Yeah, exactly. Um, to kind of expand on that a bit, a great example, um, working with these little bumblebee walking toads, Monophrenicus delsteri, that come from Paraguay. Um, they would come in, they'd be imported by the tens of thousands a year for a couple few years, and then exports would shut down for a decade. Um, we acquired about 50 of those animals, wild-caught, and with that and with those bloodlines, We'll be able to successfully meet all the all the demands for that animal um, annually in the United States um, for at least the next 15 or 20 years while maintaining a genetically viable population. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Um, so, Zach or Josh, you feel like this uh, moratorium on the incoming salamanders, you feel like that would help improve the quality of the wild-caught animals that you'll see out on the market? Um, it, you know, it really depends on how it plays out. You know, definitely, um, I would say uh, myself and Zach personally, and then, you know, in terms of the business, are all for protective 
protecting wild populations, whether here or abroad, and we want to do what we can uh, to protect those um, those those uh, those populations out in the wild. So, I mean, that's definitely a goal uh, for us. I mean, that's how we got our start as kids out in the wild catching native stuff, and um, you know, we don't want to take that away from our kids as well um, in pursuit right. of keeping the populations. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Reed and uh, James, let's get back to talking a little bit about the animals in the wild. Um, something I was thinking of is with the chytrid that's already here, and if the the bee sow was to come into the U.S. or even even work at in Europe. I mean, we've talked about the antifungals, the uh, the bacterial concoctions and stuff. How would uh, we go about um, possibly introducing that into the environment to help fight the chytrid? And what other effects might it have um, if it was to be introduced into the environment? So are you talking about the uh, the probiotic solution? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, in general, what we're talking about in that case is not introducing anything new to the environment. So, okay. I mean, the amphibians right now, they already have a lot of different species of bacteria on their skin. Uh, it turns out some of those species of bacteria are more protective than others. The bacteria secrete these uh, metabolites, which can be really, really effective against uh, BD. And probably B sal too, but like I said, this is also new. There hasn't really been any testing done yet. Um, so the idea would be to sort of ramp up, you know, can we ramp up those good bacteria, you know, on the skins of the salamanders um, or frogs, depending on if we're talking about BD or, or B sal. So the idea would be, and of course, we would advocate some, you know, small-scale tests to make sure about this, but the idea would be since we're not introducing anything new, but we're just trying to ramp up the amounts of some uh, bacteria, some protective bacteria on the amphibian skin, that there really shouldn't be any uh, negative effects. And so these probiotics are used in all sorts of different situations, like in agriculture and aquaculture and so forth. And people have looked at non-target species effects in those cases, and they've never found them. So it's not like we're, uh, I don't think we're really treading on dangerous ground here, but of course we would advocate proper testing uh, ahead of time. Okay. All right, JD, you got anything you want to add? JD, JD, JD. Oh, JD. Oh, JD. All right, guys, I was taking some pictures, JD. Yeah, yeah, I think you know uh, the protection of the wild population of salamanders is good, but I agree with uh, Zach and Josh that you know, you know, it goes back to kids going out and collecting and stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of states have changed that that you know you can only take so many species out of the wild, and a lot of them are protected now. So I mean, in some ways, you know, it's already happening that they're getting taken away. So. Uh, I think, you know, to protect our wild population is a good thing to have some kind of production in place. I mean, that's a good point because, of course, amphibians are uh, under attack from habitat destruction like everything else. Right. Uh, then, then you have these issues of the chytrid fun, uh, fungi in natural protected areas. So, yeah, we need to work on, on all fronts to try to conserve them in nature. Okay. Um, you were talking, uh, Reed, earlier about um, temperature treatments for the, the bee sow because um, it likes the cooler temps. Is there any chance of higher temps um, harm, actually harming the salamander? Uh, of course, there would, you know, if we got too high, that would be true. But, but some, some of the salamanders, like our uh, notophthalmus newts, uh, they can take, you know, pretty high temperatures, 85 Fahrenheit, you know, 30, 30 centigrade, at least for short period, periods of time. So that should be well within the temperature range that would uh, the heat therapy would work to clear them of bee cells. So here again, I want to stress nobody's uh, gotten to the point of testing that out yet, but uh, okay. that would be a prediction you could make just based on the publications that are out there so far. 
and of course we all know that the, uh, the new Venetophthalmus are uh, can be really abundant. They're they're known as keystone predators in the ponds. Uh, the experiments done back in the 80s show if you uh, in these experimental ponds, if you take the the newt out, it totally changes the competitive environment of the various tadpole species. Um, so they, the newts are known as the keystone species. It's just unimaginable to think of them being wiped out, you know, by bee cell. Uh, yeah. They're certainly be highly highly susceptible in these laboratory trials over in Europe. Okay, um, and I uh, I got to back up something you said there, Reed, about the, the newts. I mean, I've seen, you know, the central newt anyway, I've seen them out in all kinds of temperature ranges. I found them in the mm-hmm. wild. That's where I this out yesterday. I got to put down my towel because it was damaged. Um, what, what's that? Had somebody talking there. But um, anyway, you know, I've seen them out and about, uh, you know, all kinds of different temperature ranges. When it's warm, when it's cold, they don't really seem to care too much as long as it's, it's not mm-hmm. getting Yeah, that worries me a little bit. I've seen, yeah, the eastern nude out in all sorts of temperatures as well. So they would certainly be quite vulnerable, you know, when they're out in the cooler times of year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean those little guys—they're—they're they're totally different than other salamanders you find. You know, you flip a rock and there's some long tails or something. Else. They usually go scurrying for cover, but the newts just kind of sit there all fearless and they just kind of look at yeah. it. <laughs> you know, they're—they're they're not afraid. They know nothing's going to try right. to eat them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. An advantage of having having tetrodotoxin in your skin. Yeah, yeah, and they know it too. They're pretty fearless. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. Does anybody have anything they'd like to add? Yeah, it sounds like everybody's pretty, in pretty much agreement here. So it's just a matter of, you know, working out the details. Of right. The testing. So, yeah. Okay. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, once it gets going, it ought to work okay. Um what kind of obstacles are there to actually getting the testing implemented? I think on the policy front, it's the reality that this hasn't been done before. Um, so it's working out how something like this can be implemented um, and making sure that all of the key stakeholders, uh, so the zoo community, the hobbyist community, the science community, conservation are all on board with what's put forward. Um, and that's kind of the role that the Alliance is really taking, is making sure that everybody has a voice in it. Um, okay. uh, so obstacles really are just, you know, how do we do something we haven't done before? And then when it comes down to things being implemented, of course, U.S. Fish and Wildlife will need additional resources because this isn't something in any budget lines at the moment. Okay. All right, um, James, I was wondering, um, you know, we're talking about testing incoming salamanders. Um, is there any way possible to test salamanders that are already in captivity? Uh, great question. Um, so that's something that we're exploring at the moment with some of our partners. So if your viewers go on to amphibians.org slash salamanderheroes, they'll uh, be able to access a little bit more information on B-Cell. And one of the things that we're doing is offering free testing kits. So huh? if anybody out there owns a salamander, we'll send them a testing kit so that they can find out whether their salamander has B-Cell or not. Um, okay. So yeah, it's really about being informed. Uh, we've got about 500 of those kits to give away, um, and we're hoping that they'll be going out early next year. Um to encourage people to, to look into that. Um, and then also, you know, if anybody does have a pet salamander that, that gets a lesion and dies, um, you know, make sure you speak to your vet and your practitioners and, and get in touch with us. Um, and let's see if we can find out if, if B-cell was the cause of that. Hopefully it, it isn't. Um, right. And as we pointed out earlier, this isn't something that's been detected in the U.S. yet or North America. Right. Um, all right, now how does the, the testing kit work? I mean, do you just, like, take a swab of the salamander's 
a scan, or how's that work? Yep. Yep, that's, okay. that's exactly it. That sounds easy enough. Take the swab and then post it back. Yeah. Um, well, how would that work with uh, aquatic salamanders like axolotls? Um, I don't know. Would a, would just as maybe like a water sample work? Read. Well, you could still, uh, you know, pick them up and just swab them. It, it would be fine. Okay. That, that way as well. Just, uh, yeah, swab. Give them a good swabbing. You don't want to, you know, press too deeply, of course, but uh, right, give them a good right. swabbing and. Uh, just mail it back in, and that'll be adequate for a test. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty easy. In fact, I think I'll be uh, talking to you guys about maybe um, checking out uh, my salamanders. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Okay. That sounds easy enough. Um, all right. All right. Uh, Zach or Josh, you guys got anything you want to add? Um, I just think that this is a really good uh, precedent ascent for um, our hobby in working with organizations like this to be proactive about things like this. I think a lot of times right. these kind of issues get asked in a lot of, you know, them against us type stuff. And, you know, if we're all um, sharing the same goals of protecting uh, wild populations, you know, there's there's opportunities for us to be a benefit to organizations such as um, the ASA, and for uh, them to benefit us as well, and it's a you know going to be a win-win for all around for us, them, and for wild uh, uh, populations as well, as well as captive populations. Yeah, I, I think I said it's, it goes for um, captive populations as well. I don't think anybody out there wants a sick pet salamander. So. No, no, absolutely not. Um, and you know, I got to admit, guys, I was a little nervous going into this show, so I wasn't really sure how it was going to go and everything, but. It, I'm feeling a lot better about things now. Okay, it's kind of sounding like we're all really on the same side here. Um, we just got to make sure that the diseases don't spread, and, and nobody wants that. So, right, right. You know, come up with something. Yeah, well, we, all, we all started off, you know, as kids with pet salamanders and frogs. and You know, as long as everything's done the right way, you know, we're all on the same page, it sounds like. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I believe so. I believe so. So, um, you know, hopefully we can get something done here that's um, going to keep the uh, the fungus from spreading and um, and not only not harming the captive trade, but basically making higher quality animals and in the long run improving the captive trade. Um, right now it's kind of sounding like a win-win. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, so, um, okay, J.D., you got anything? Yeah, I think it's been a great show and a lot of good information out there, guys. Uh, you know, I hope to, there was a couple other people I was hoping to hear from, uh, Eric D. with the uh, Breed Dogs Lottles and the Phil Goss. So, uh, well, actually, we'll see what uh, Phil Goss just called in. He just showed up on the switchboard here, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him on, okay, J.D.? All right. Okay, I'd like to welcome Phil Goss, the president of USR, the United States Association of Reptile Keepers. Phil, welcome back to Herpin Time Radio. Well, hello. Thanks for having me on again. That's our pleasure. Um, Phil, um, uh, what do you think about everything we've been talking about? No, like I discussed with you earlier, that there were quite a few people on the call, so I've just been listening and I mean, it's, again, to reiterate, we're all on the same page here. I spoke to James last week, and then Josh and Zach did a did a great job representing how the majority of the, the HERP community feels about this topic. So I think everybody uh, addressed it extremely well, and we'll just uh, need to get some protocols in place and kind of go from there. Okay. All right. Um, so this is uh, something that... Um, the, the moratorium, the, the testing of the incoming salamanders, is that something that then that um, USARC is going to work with to support? Well, again, I know some of the ASA and other groups are working with FWS, so we'll okay. to, again, all, all this is still being tested, and I know that that's definitely, that's definitely something that's being considered. Um, so we'll just have to see, again, exactly, get some more tests, which hopefully some of those results will be coming in here extremely soon because I know there's testing been, being done as ASA had mentioned. 
Um, but, I mean, obviously we can't. <laughs> if there's a chance of beast out coming in and, and decimating everything, that's that's something we got to look at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't want it coming in decimating captive populations. We don't want it coming in decimating wild populations. Um, it's bad news. And it is great to see that, that all the groups are mentioning a temporary moratorium. Um, there's nothing, I didn't read anything, any of the letters that were presented to FWS that said, you know, they're asking for a outright, complete, and total ban of, of the importation for, for the rest of eternity. Um, so it's great that they're being being open-minded and realizing that the trade is a, a huge part of keeping salamanders, and in some cases, as you mentioned, mentioned the axolotl, it actually keeps them alive where they may be extinct in the wild. Right. Right. And, um, you know, that's the, the prime example I could think of. Um, but it's absolutely. also true, for example, with the uh, the Panamanian golden frog right now. It's pretty much being kept alive in a survival assurance colony. Yep, that's another one. Okay. Um, well, I think you guys, uh, we've had ourselves a really good show here. I definitely want to thank everybody for calling in. Um, we hit on a lot of good points here. Um, I think we got the facts out that, especially with captive uh, people that work with animals in captivity, you need to realize that um, this thing's not a ban or anything. It's something that actually, in the long run, can improve the quality of captive populations and keep a very deadly disease out. And nobody's trying to ban anything. And um, hopefully everything can be put in place and work. And, and the main thing, you know, we got to keep this out of captive populations and out of wild populations. It's something nobody wants. Um, but Zach and Josh, Reed, James, Phil, I'd definitely like to thank you all for calling in. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. It was a good chat. Yeah, yeah, as always. And, uh, you know, we'll probably be talking to you guys sometime. Uh, definitely, you know, Josh. Or you know Zach and hopefully Josh also you know don't be a stranger. Um, we've had you guys on several times before, or, or we had Zach on several times before. And we'll probably uh, hit you guys up again in the future. Sounds good. Zach just has a much better voice for radio than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Reed and and James and uh, Phil. I mean, if there's any updates coming up on this that you want put out there, just let us know. We'll get it out there, okay? Okay, Absolutely. thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah. But thanks for calling in, guys. Um, you guys have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Okay, thank Bye. you. All right, J.D., what do you think? I think, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a great show. Uh you know, a lot of good information. A lot of people working together, man. Uh, you yeah. Know, all to save it. All to save amphibians, man. And I had a great day out here in the field, seeing some wild amphibians in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, know, it's a. That, that's bro. Kind of the beauty of it. That's kind of uh, the magic that we're seeing here is everybody working together on this, and. Um, you know that's a that's a, a beautiful thing I think. Uh, that's turping so, awesome, brother. Yeah, turping awesome. But you know we'll uh, keep an eye on it, and hopefully the moratorium, hopefully you know testing incoming amphibians works good and everything, and it might set precedents actually. Um, you know that might end up benefiting everybody plus the animals. So. Anyway, um, J.D., you got anything else you want to put out there? Are you ready to call it a day? Let's call it a day, man. It was a great show, and, uh, you know, we will herp you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Herpin' Time Radio. Catch us again next week. Until then, don't do anything stupid. And also, let me check calendar here. Um, Everybody have a Merry Christmas. You know what, J.D., something we forgot about. This is the last show before Christmas. So, everybody out there. What's that, JD? Everybody have a everybody have a Merry Christmas and uh, be safe and have a Happy New Year. You know, we'll go into 2015 with a blast, brother. You know, we got the Texas Owl Flight Festival coming up. Oh the yeah, there's a lot. Of, um, there's yeah, a lot of I, 
coming up in 2015. We can't reveal it all at once because it would simply blow your mind. Um, but we'll we'll be revealing stuff a little at a time. Anyway, everybody out there in Herpentine land, um, you have yourselves a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Don't do anything stupid. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you.